according to the most recent statistics, it, it takes $200,000 in American money today to raise a child from birth to 18 years of age. $200,000, that is a lot of money. But I'm telling you, there's an even greater investment that you need to make, much more important than whatever dollars you spend on that child. That's your time, your energy, your love, and your spiritual affirmation. The foundations for moral and spiritualness that you build in that child will make all the difference as the years go by. I think that raising your child in the church is vital to helping them have a strong spiritual foundation. It is the family that, as we come together and all the things that are offered, that help build this in your child's life. And that's so important. At least I think it's so important. But a recent survey uh, done by Lifeway Research says that 76% of parents who come to church on a weekly basis who have kids under the age of 18 living at home, 76% do not believe, do not see faith or godliness as necessities for success. And maybe that explains why sometimes our kids have so much problem. I believe it is very vital to their success. And I, I, I think we need to build on a spiritual foundation. You see, parenting is both joyful and burdensome. The joy grows out of the love that a parent experiences which defies description. I could not have described the joy of being a parent until I became one. You, you can't know that until you get there. But it is a love that is just, well, it's, it's wonderful. And it gives us another insight into the heart of God. It, it gives me just a glimpse into the heart of God because I cannot imagine allowing one of my children to die for you but God did. And so I get a glimpse of that pain and loss. And then the burden comes when one considers the incredible weight of responsibility of training a child to become all that God created that child to be. And just remember, the scriptures provide great wisdom on what it means to be a godly parent. And I will tell you, one of the greatest privileges in my life has been that of being a dad. I can't, I can't, I can't imagine life without our daughters. As a matter of fact, I can't imagine life now without my sons-in-law. They, they have become a part of, of the family, and, and, and I'm so grateful for the job that Elsie did in raising our daughters. Now, some of you may not have children of your own, and so you don't quite know what this means, and some of you are thinking, well, I'm just going to check out. This isn't for me. Yeah, it is. These principles apply to us at any stage, especially parenting, but they apply to all of us in some form or fashion. And can I tell you this morning, if you're not a parent, Maybe your kids have grown and they're gone way far from here and you don't have much interaction with them or, or maybe you can't have children of your own or, or maybe you have decided to adopt children but that process hasn't worked out for you yet. Can I encourage you to find a way to be substitute parents? There are kids in your extended family, maybe nieces and nephews that don't get much time with their parents or who need an extra parent to come alongside. Are there kids in the boys club and girls club and organizations like that who don't have parents like they would like to have and you can come in and fill that need. You can be a substitute parent and make an incredible impact on the lives of kids. And you say, is being a substitute parent okay? Sure, God's into substitutes. Look at the cross. So your role as a substitute parent may turn around some child's life. So wherever you are in this journey, this applies to all of us. And all of us who are parents surely know the pain of wishing we could go back and, and do some things over and do them better. But it's on-the-job training. Babies don't come with owner's manuals. And even if they did, most of us wouldn't read it. We'd just leave it in the baby's glove box because that's where you keep owner's manuals. And you don't ever take time to read them. 
because you see you're too busy trying to raise the child to figure out how to raise the child. But that's okay. It's been done that way for years and years and years and centuries and generations. You just need to do your best. And you need to make a commitment to be there. Do it. Don't abdicate it. Darlene and Nathan had just brought home their brand new baby from the hospital. And, and Darlene thought this is a good way for her husband Nathan to start bonding with the child. And so she said, why don't you change the baby's first diaper? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I'll change the next one. And she said, okay. So she changed the diaper. And about two hours later, she noticed that the baby needed to be changed again. She said, Nathan, your turn. And, and he gave her one of those deer in the headlight looks. And then he realized what she was asking. He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I didn't mean the next diaper. I meant the next baby. Not a good way to start your role as parent. But Nathan isn't the first to abdicate that role or to drop the ball or to make mistakes. There are some in Scripture that we can learn from. Now, I want to say this too. We only have snippets and glimpses into the lives of the men and women of Scripture. So I, I, I can't, I, I don't want to seem critical, okay? Because sometimes verses are separated by years or even decades and so we only see part of it. But God put both the good and the bad in the story so that we could learn from both sides of the coin. And so I'm not trying to be critical in this story, but I am going to point out to you the things that went wrong because if I can learn from something that went wrong in somebody else's life, maybe I won't repeat the same lesson. So among the many right decisions that Jacob made, there were some wrong ones that played out into his parenting role So I'm going to start here. I wish I could give you so much more background, but I can't this morning. So just suffice it to say that after Jacob robbed his brother Esau of his birthright, which was the most treasured possession that he had of this promise of God extending through him, and after he deceived his father in order to give it to him, Esau is so angry he threatens to kill his brother Jacob, and Jacob leaves his home where he's got his twin brother Esau and his father Isaac and his mother Rebekah, and he flees to the family, extended family on his mother's side. These would be Rebecca's people. And so he journeys to his uncle Laban's house and it is there at his uncle Laban's house that he takes refuge. Now he's not there very long until he spots one of Laban's daughters and he just, he is immediately head over heels in love with Rachel. As a matter of fact, he's been there about a month and he bargains with, with Laban to, to, to marry Rachel. And, and Laban says, okay, got a deal for you. You work seven years for me and I will give you Rachel to be your wife. And Jacob signed on the dotted line. He, he said, all right, I'll work for you seven years for Rachel. Now, whatever happened to such grand traditions in this household kind of thing? I miss the good old days when a father of the bride got paid for the bride. Something should not have gone by the wayside. It's a beautiful story. And I love this one verse in the story. After we get to the end of the seven years. The, the wedding is, is now just a short distance off. And, and the Bible says, Jacob worked for Rachel for seven years, but they seemed but a day because of his love for her. Isn't that a beautiful statement? What a romantic statement. Worked for seven years, but they seemed just like a day because he loved her that much. Here's first lesson, parents. Husbands and wives, the best gift that you can give to your children is to love your spouse with all of your heart. Nothing will give them a more stable environment and a better example as to what the home should be than to assure them by your actions and your love that the two people they love and depend on the most will never split up. 
You may think that your kids don't value you very much. I mean, after all, they complain about your rules. They are embarrassed by what you do and what you wear. And when you're out in public, they pretend they don't know you, but they care. (laughs) They do value you. Arthur Brooks in Gross National Happiness offers a pleasant surprise to most parents. He notes that those in the age group between 13 and 24 say spending time with their family is important. 75% of those in that category say being with their parents, their relationship with their parents makes them happy. You may not see it in your kids. They may not be forthcoming with it to your face, but they love who you are and they love being with you and they value you and, and they want that home to feel secure. And so the best thing you can do for them is to love your spouse with all your heart and to make that home a solid place to be. Because here's something else you may not realize, and that is that in most situations when there is a divorce, the kids blame themselves. They say, what did we do that made mom and dad break up? Now, you know and I know that's not the case, but the kids don't know that. And they deal with this this guilt and these fears and this frustration, and they're they're angry and frustrated when, when that happens. Now, I know some of you here in this congregation have gone through divorce, not because you wanted it to be that way. You never went into marriage with that kind of an intention, and you wanted everything to work out that way. And sometimes, beyond your ability, the other person in this relationship says, I want nothing more to do with this marriage. And so you suddenly find yourself as a single parent and you think, what can I do to give stability to my kids? I'll tell you what you can do. You have to work extra hard. You have to love them more. You have to continually reassure them that you as children didn't break up this marriage and you have to use the body of Christ to help come around you, with you, and support you in this. So you work harder to love them. You work harder to instill them with a spiritual foundation and you work harder to remind them they are not at fault. So here I'm, I'm telling you, parents, if you're married and the marriage is a little rough and you're contemplating breaking up this marriage, may I ask of you, do everything within your power to keep this marriage together. Take in counseling, go to seminars. I don't care what it is. Talk to those of us on staff. You do everything within your power. Set aside your own personal feelings or your own personal wants and do your best to make that marriage work. Because when you go out of that marriage, you'll take your dirty laundry and your heavy baggage with you into the next relationship and it'll turn out the same way if you're not making the changes that you ought to make. So make the most. Work together, the two of you. Keep that marriage together because you need that. And your kids need it too. Back to the story. Only after the wedding was over, after these seven years, was the heavily veiled bride exposed for who she was. They've gone through the whole wedding, you know. Joseph, or Jacob lifts the veil and it's, it's not Rachel, it's, it's Leah. It's the older sister. Now, he, he's, he's angry, and, and, and who wouldn't be? He just worked seven years for the woman that he loved, and so he goes off to his father and says, what, what, what in the world have you done to me, Dad? I mean, you know, I work for Rachel, and, and I'm married to Leah. And, and Laban said, well, let me, let, let me explain to you. He said, we have this custom that, you know, you can't marry the younger daughter until the older daughter is married, and and I think when Laban said work for seven years, I think he was hedging his bets. I think he was saying, you know, if I can't marry off this oldest daughter in seven years, then I need to hang it up as as a father. 
He couldn't pass her off on anybody in seven years. So they come to the wedding. He pulls the old switcheroo and says, I got to do this the right way. So he slips in a ringer on the wedding service, and there is Leah now married to, to Jacob. And Laban says, but such a deal I have for you. He said, you work another seven years for me, and you can marry Rachel. He says, okay. Now, he didn't have to wait that full seven years. He just said, you, you wait till the wedding week and this time is over, and then you can marry Rachel. Now, I, I hurt for Leah in this story. She becomes a pawn in her father's own deceptiveness. Here is a woman married to a man, and she knows he doesn't love her. He didn't pick her. He didn't work seven years for her, but he is stuck with her. And she thinks, if I had enough time, I could get him to love me. And I think over the years, Jacob did love her. But she only has a week. And then the sister comes in, the one that he had worked seven years for, the one that he was going to work another seven years for, the one that he loved the most. And this is a recipe for disaster. It was a mess. And, 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 and then, here, to add to all this, Leah has children easily. And so they're not very, very long until she's with child and she gives birth to a child. And Rachel, the one that he loves, she's barren. She can't have kids. And so now she's jealous of Leah, and Leah's kind of flaunting the fact, you may be the loved one, but I'm the one with the kids. And you see, in that day and time, if a woman couldn't have children, she felt like she had not fulfilled her life's responsibility and duty. And so in, 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 in somewhat of a frustration, Rachel says, all right, Jacob, I'm going to give you my handmaiden to be a wife, and she's going to become like a surrogate parent for me, and, and I'm going to raise up those children that she has as sort of my own. And so now Jacob has three wives. Not to be outdone, Leah does the same thing. She gives him her handmaiden, says, I'll do the same thing. Now Jacob has four wives, only one of which he really loved and worked for. It's no wonder he spent so much time with the flocks and the herds. Now, you can call this a blended family if you want to, but I'm here to tell you it was a dysfunctional zoo. It was just a zoo. Here's the lesson. Parents, deception has no place in the home. Oh, what goes around comes around. Jacob deceived his dad to get the birthright, deceived his brother to get the birthright. Now all of a sudden he's standing at the altar and his father-in-law has deceived him and married off. And it goes on and on and on. And I'm here to tell you, the home is no place for deception, lies, dishonesty, and duplicity. You be honest with your spouse. You be honest with your kids. Children, be honest with your parents. You see, deception always destroys. It ruins truth. And when there is no trust, it ruins trust, excuse me. And when there is no trust in the home, the very relationships which ought to be the most precious to us cannot and will not survive. Parents, your kids will see through your phoniness. And if they don't spot it immediately, they will find it out soon enough because you cannot hide the deception forever. Falsehood will come to the surface and when it does, it's, it's, it's awful. Because here's what it'll do to your kids. When they catch you being phony and dishonest and lying, this is, this is what it'll do. It'll, it'll destroy their respect for you. And number two, they'll say, okay, if dad can lie, I can lie. 
If he can be dishonest, I can be dishonest. If he can be a phony, I can be a phony. And how are you going to help discipline them in that if the reason that they're acting the way they are is because they're modeling your life? Leave the dishonesty out of the relationships, all right? You just be honest. Because you see, when, when I don't tell the story because maybe I'm embarrassed about the truth, and I don't want to own up to the truth, and so I tell a lie to cover that. Now I've got two stories to remember, the lie and the truth. And then I'll have to tell another lie to cover that one up, and so now I've got three stories to remember, and then four stories. And, and you can't afford to remember all those stories, so just tell the truth. It will be a foundation your kids can build on, and they will respect you for it. And it is a reflection of the character and nobility of God. Well, back to the story. Finally, Rachel has a son of her own, and they name him Joseph. Now, you saw Joseph in the Brady Bunch video up there, uh, the Jacob Bunch video, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and because Jacob loved Rachel more than all of his other wives, guess how he feels about Joseph? <laughs> Since Rachel was the favorite, now Joseph becomes the favorite, and Dad just can't seem to do enough for, for, for Joseph. And so he has this beautiful coat made for Joseph. It is a coat of many colors or it's a coat of long sleeves. Uh, we're not sure exactly how to be translated. It could be a, a multicolored long sleeve jacket. I don't know what it was, but it was the only one of its kind. Nobody else in the family had anything like it. And it was a coat of honor and nobility. And so when Joseph put that on, the only one to have one, it was like saying to the rest of the boys, you're second class in this family. I've only got one son I really love. And that's Joseph. No wonder they despised him. Lesson, parents, be consistent. Don't play favorites with your children. Do your best to treat each one of them equally. And by equally, I mean love them equally, enjoy them equally, encourage them equally, bless them equally in your life. Be consistent takes a lot of time, energy, and focus to accomplish this. Because no two children are alike. So you can't treat them exactly alike, but you can make them feel equally loved and valued in the family. Because one child has got a personality bent this way and another child has a personality bent this way, you can't always treat them in the same way to get that personality where it needs to go. And even for all of your efforts, you're, you're never sure if you've done it right. John Ortberg asked the question, he said, who has greater contentment, a man with seven children or a man with seven million dollars? And the answer is a man with seven children because he doesn't want any more. <laughs> and the reason he doesn't want any more is because it's hard work. Being a parent isn't easy. And doing it the right way is even harder. Now you can slough your way through it, but your kids will pay an awful price. Do it right. Be consistent. Now, we love to read this passage in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. And we parents cling to uh, this promise that we, we think the Scriptures tells us, and that is that if I give my child a foundation that is spiritual and strong and moral, and they go off some kind of a rabbit trail down here, that eventually they'll come back to what I've told them and taught them. And I think that's true. I believe when you give them the right foundation, eventually they'll have something to come back to, but that's not what this verse teaches us. Uh, we we kind of read it that way, but that's not what this says. This verse is more of a challenge than it is a promise. The, the word train originally described a mother putting food into a baby's mouth. It later meant to equip. 
And the verse should be more readily read like this. Train a child according to his personality and temperament. And when he is old, he will not turn aside from it. You see, it has more to do with discernment than discipline. It has more to do with personal development than spiritual development even. It's the challenge of helping your children discover their natural bent and then helping shape them and cultivating that growth in that direction. It's not about you making your kids the athlete or the musician that you never were. It's about helping them discover who they are, their unique talents, their traits, their abilities, their likes, their dislikes, their interests, and then funneling them in that direction. Because you see, I'm convinced that only when we become who God created us to be will we find satisfaction in life. Now, it's a tough challenge for any parent because every child is unique and different. And that's why it's hard work, because that means you have to spend time with every child. You can't just kind of do a group activity. You have to spend time individually with those children to know how they are and to find out what makes each one of them tick to be able to do that. And you can't do that quickly. Support the positive and the good choices. Help them discover who they are. To this day, I marvel at and celebrate the differences between Emily and Rebecca. I wouldn't want them to be identical. I have loved the differences between them, but sometimes figuring out what those differences were were, were challenges. Their distinctive personalities have brought a lot of joy into our lives. Even identical twins are different in some ways. So study them, your children, carefully. I like what Art Linkletter wrote many years ago. He said, our children are the living messages we send into a time we shall not see. Oh, that is so true. How we raise our kids and how they raise their children and how those children raise their children. We'll never get to see the end result of that. You are sending your children on as a message to the generations in the days ahead. So what kind of a reflection do you want to send on of yourself through the lives of your children and your grandchildren by the way you have raised them? Be consistent. Help them to become their best. That's the message you want to send into the future. Well, back to the story. Rachel died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, so now Joseph grows up, and Benjamin too, without a birth mother. His stepmothers don't exactly fill the void after all. I mean, they've watched their own sons become second-class citizens in the family, and so they're, not, they're just not going to go out of their way to take care of Joseph and provide. And I think because... Now Jacob has lost the, the, the love of his life, and all he has of a connection with her are both Joseph and Benjamin. He begins to dote on them even more, and it sets the stage for this cataclysmic event. Now, I, I think Joseph is my favorite character in the Old Testament. He is oftentimes called the Christ of the Old Testament. He became a man of great integrity, a man of noble principles, a man of uncompromising honesty. He became all of that in his adulthood. His adult life is a model worth following. However, when his brothers knew him, they didn't see him like that. Now, I'm not sure that they saw him rightly, but they didn't see him like that. They saw him as, well, something far less. I'm not even sure Joseph saw himself for what God was working in him to be. Let me speculate with you a little bit. He was viewed as a snitch. Verse 2 of chapter 37, it says, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers and the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. It's the little brother who goes back and tattles to dad on what you're doing wrong out with the sheep. You don't like that. You just hate that. And it's, it's, it's just a spoiled kid anyway. Dad loved him more than ever, anybody else and gave him that crazy coat. 
Which brings me to another thing. I was kind of insensitive. Uh, Joseph, I think, was. I, I don't know that he did it thoughtfully. He just did it. Dad gave him the coat, so he wears the coat. Now, you know, if you got a coat that everybody else hated, the wise thing to do would be hang it in the closet and bring it out on just special holidays and, and wear it then. But no, Joseph wears that coat all the time. It's like pouring vinegar into an open wound in, for his brothers. And, and, and then, then I think they viewed him as being full of himself. Now, I don't know that Joseph felt that way, but they felt that way about him. Joseph had this dream about 11 wheat sheaves bowing down to his wheat sheaf out in the field. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what that dream says. He's got 11 brothers. You know, all of us are going to bow down to Joseph. You know, listen, folks, if you tell a story and nobody applauds at the end of it, don't tell the same story again a little bit later. All right? It's a good sign that it didn't go over too well. So he has another dream. This time it's 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to his star. He tells the second one, and it just incenses them. And they see this kid who's a tattletale, he's spoiled, he's viewed as being insensitive, and he's viewed as being full of himself. And so the next time he comes out to the field, they say, we're going to kill him. Now, one of the wiser older brothers stopped him from killing him, but they did sell him to a band of Ishmaelites, and they, they took that coat, and they relished rubbing it in the blood and poured blood all over it, and they took it home, and they threw it at their father's feet and said, is this the coat of your son? How do boys do that to their father? How do siblings do that to a brother? It's because I believe that Jacob set them up for this whole scenario. May I suggest that Jacob was not good at setting boundaries in the lives of his sons or even in his own life. And I find it interesting that once God got Joseph away from home and away from this environment, God was able to shape him in ways to turn him into the great man that he became. And I think that was always there. But maybe it was overshadowed by some of this dysfunctionality. As to the other sons, it does not appear that Jacob ever really disciplined them either. Consequently, they were known for their deceitful and duplicitous deeds. You go back and you read the story, and one time they lied to a whole city, and then they killed the men of that city to take revenge, something that their father should have done something about discipline-wise, but he, but he did nothing discipline-wise. No wonder the boys acted as they did. One of the more well-known proverbs, but is often poorly quoted, is this one from chapter 13, verse 24. We quote it as, spare the rod and spoil the child. But it reads like this. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful, careful to discipline him. The word hate, here's the lesson, folks. The word hate does not mean despise. It means not loving as much as he could. The word here translated careful means seeks early. It has a double meaning in that we can easily miss. It means to seek early in life of a child to teach right and wrong and to hold that child responsible for wrong choices. It also means to seek diligently. It requires your full attention to accomplish this. This isn't easy. When kids push back and say painful things or when they don't like what you say or your disciplinary actions, that's tough. I saw this sign this past week. I thought it was kind of neat. Parents for sale. Buy one, get one free. Sometimes that's the way your kids are. That's the way they feel. You know, they push back, and sometimes you just feel like throwing up your hand and saying, all right, you want to be that way? You can just be that way. I'm tired of messing with you. But you've got to set the boundaries, even through painful times, or it won't shape your child's life. The use of the word rod here makes it sound like 
Somehow this is condoning child abuse. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Each day in America, four children die from child abuse, and 13,700 reports of child abuse are recorded every day in America. God has no tolerance for child abuse. Nothing could be as heinous as child abuse. But there's more than one way to abuse a child. It's not just physical. It can be verbal. It can be emotional. It can be mental. Or I'm going to suggest another way that we never think about. And that is if you never set boundaries in your child's life. If you never tell your child no, I think that's a form of abuse because you are ill-preparing your child to face this life when they become an adult. If they don't know the boundaries, if they think it's always about them, you are creating a, an, an unlikely scenario for success Fit them with boundaries. Henry Brandt noted, he said, to discipline a child is not to punish him for stepping out of line. It is to teach the child the way he ought to go. Discipline, therefore, includes everything that you can do in order to help your child learn. Choices and decisions have consequences. Your kids have to understand that principle. Perhaps we should read Proverbs 13, 24 like this. He who withholds punishment does not love his child as much as he could. But he who loves him seeks early and diligently to discipline him. Okay, here's the bottom line. I'm coming to an end. Parenting has a lot of desperate moments in it. Failures as well as successes. Fears as well as confident victories. Sadness as well as joy. Disappointments as well as hope. But here's my point. Parents, just do your best. As a Christian parent, do your best. That's all you can do. And then let God do the rest. Be at peace with that. Give them a moral and spiritual foundation. Give them moral, spiritual, mental, and emotional tools that they will need to strive and thrive throughout life, and that's all you can do. For all of our efforts, sometimes a child goes off down a different road. I know families who have done an outstanding job of building the foundation and giving their kids everything that they need to give them, and that child somehow goes a different journey. That's a painful thing for a parent. It was not a parent's fault. When a child grows up to be an adult, they have their free choice and their will, and they exercise that. And so parents, don't beat yourself up if you've done your best and tried to give them everything that they need to live life fully, and they've gone a different route. You see, God calls us to encourage our family, to be positive in our reinforcement, because if we don't give it to them, they'll find it somewhere else. And the best encouragement you can give your child is to pray for him or her. Pray for them before they're born. Pray for them throughout their childhood. Pray for their careers. Pray for the ones they choose to marry. Pray for them as adults and pray for them as they someday become parents of their own and the cycle starts all over again. Pray for them as long as you have breath until the day you die because you will always be their parent and they will always need your prayers. Pray and never stop praying for your child. You see, time is short. When you celebrate your child's sixth birthday, you're one third of the way done. When you celebrate their 12th birthday, you're two-thirds of the way done. And when you celebrate their 18th birthday, you're done. Now, I don't mean you're done and they walk out of your life forever. You have a wonderful relationship afterwards. But once they walk out of that door at 18, when they're done with high school and their life changes in whatever path they go down, you're, you're done with the training and the equipping and the foundation and the spiritual bedrock that you've given them. So... Don't take your job lightly. Work at it with all your heart right now. Do your best right now because you don't have a lot of time to get it done right. 
What if somebody offered to give you a $200,000 diamond to keep for a while? You had to give it back to them someday, but, but you got to keep it for a while. And then the only catch was that you had to keep that $200,000 diamond on your person at all times. <laughs> in other words, you had to carry it in your pocket or you carry it in your billfold or your purse or wherever you, know, you would be carrying. If you had a $200,000 diamond on your person all the time, how would that impact your life? I mean, would, would you be careful where you go, what you do, what you talk about? How you say things? I mean, you don't want to tell somebody you've got a $100,000 diamond in your pocket. You don't want to go into some place where you're likely to get easily robbed. You've got a $200,000 diamond, and you've got to give it back one of these days. Can I remind you that God has given you something far more valuable than a $200,000 diamond? You may spend that much getting that child from age 0 to 18, but your child is priceless. For me, it'd make me a little bit nervous to be walking around with a $200,000 diamond. I think I'd be pretty cautious about how I live life. Are you as careful and cautious with how you're raising your kids so that you give them the best of everything and you protect them and you lead them and you model for them and you instruct them and you teach them and you love them and you pray for them? You've got a priceless gift in your children, the best gift you'll ever have. Do your best and let God do the rest.